Well, good morning. We are uh, in the middle of a, a series. We're, we're moving towards the end of it in, in the book of Jonah. Uh, if you want to follow along, there's a, a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. We're on page 645 as we go through this. We've been calling this series, The Man Who Ran and the God Who Ran After. Um, and, and so the whole idea of the book of Jonah is that uh, God asked Jonah to do something, and Jonah hightails it out of there. And, uh, but that's not the end of the story, right? Because God follows after and pursues Jonah and, and catches up to him, and, and that kind of changes the entire aspect of the story. And it's really a unique story when you look at the entire Bible, especially when you look at the prophets themselves, because when you take into view all of the other prophets, not Jonah, but all of the other ones, uh, and, and if you're familiar with any of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you can go down the list of minor prophets. All of the points of those books that all of them have written are the message of what they have to relay, right? It gives very little detail about their lives. It just says, here's where they're from, here's who their dad was, here's the message. And if you read through, the point is the message that they bring. Jonah is very different from every other prophet in that when you look at the book of Jonah, it's a story, right? And there's very little about what Jonah says. And even when he says stuff, you get the impression that you're not supposed to learn how to do life from what Jonah says, right? And here's the point. Jonah's message is Jonah's life. I'll put it another way. The the life of Jonah is the message, not necessarily what he says. And so... What we have to learn is by looking at the life of Jonah, what it is that we can learn about us and how we see ourselves in the story. And this goes back a long ways. Even back into Hebrew culture, when they would read the story of Jonah, they would say collectively as a group, we are Jonah. We're just like Jonah in a lot of different ways. And so we've been finding out about that as we've gone along. And today we're going to kind of unpack another aspect of that because we learn something about Jonah that we've never discovered before today as we've read through. There is a twist in the story that we haven't seen before. And if you haven't been reading ahead, I think it's going to shock you what Jonah actually has to say about the reasons why he ran from God. But, but to kind of intro it, so we're, we're going to kind of take a view of our life first and then come back to Jonah. I want you to do this. We're going to do a little bit of an activity, so humor me a little bit, okay? Um, so, so I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I can see you from up here. It's not that bright. The lights aren't that bright. Uh, and I want you to picture in your mind a person. And specifically, I want you to picture someone whom you consider yourself to be morally superior to that person. How many of you have someone? How many of you can't think of anyone? Liars. You big, fat liars. I can't think of anybody. Here's the truth. All of us can can think of someone in our lives, someone we've bumped up against, either somebody that we know personally or somebody that we've read about in the newspaper who's maybe had a moral failure, and we can see that person and we consider ourselves to be in a morally superior place to that person. And the reason I say don't lie is because all of us have done this. All of us have used our lives to compare to someone else. And when we compare to that other person, we start to feel better about our own lives. 
This is why reality TV is so popular, right? Is anybody like a Big Brother fan? If you are, chances are you watch it because you feel a whole lot better by the time that hour is done, right? You turn the TV off and you go, man, I, I'm pretty good. I'm feeling, pretty, I'm feeling all right. Um, now, now, so that person that you imagined in, in your mind, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that the person you just thought of um, gets a promotion that you were in line for at work. So no who that person is, imagine that you're in line for a major promotion. And at the last minute they say, no, 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 we're not going to give it to you. We're going to give it to the person that you just thought of in your mind. Now you tell me, what, what emotions are running through your mind? What's, what's the top one? Envy, evil, right? Anger, judgment, unfair, jealousy. Yeah, those are some good ones, right? Anybody feeling happy, joyful, just rejoicing at life? God is good. <laughs> Sharon's an anomaly, though, right? I mean, people that know Sharon are like, there's something wrong with you. No, most of us... <laughs> All right, Sharon, you can, you can leave now because you've obviously gotten the message. You have hacked my email, and you have obviously read through my notes before I've gotten it. No, I'm kidding. See... It, most of us, we don't think of good emotions, right? We think of bad emotions. Well, why in the world do you think that, that we're not thinking good emotions for that person, but only evil, right? The reason is because deep down, you believe that there is something about you which makes you better than the other person. And it could be hard work, right? It could be a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be you could just consider yourself better. Maybe you worked harder for the thing, right? But, but there's something that makes a distinction between you and that other person that if they were to get something that you perceive as being deserved for your life, you would be incredibly angry. And, and, and the reason I, for that, there's a number of them, but I think one of the major reasons is we live in a culture which says to us over and over and over and over again, if you work hard enough at the good life, you get what? The good life, right? That your outcome will equal your input. And so just work harder, do more, be more, be a better person, and all things will work out for you. Yeah, right. And, and so our culture is built off of this idea, right? You need to be superior to your competition if you're going to make something of yourself in this world. And so we hear things all the time like market yourself, believe in yourself. Don't let anyone say to you that you're not good enough, right? You can be anything you want to be, Billy, when you grow up, yeah? But here's the thing, and this, I know this is true of my life because I've been raised by this same ethic. Um, when you have a generation of people that have been told that they deserve something before they've ever gotten there, what do you get out of those people? Yeah, you get a generation of narcissists, right? You get a generation of people who think they deserve everything and anything that they want. Entitlement, exactly. Um, 
So, so here's the reason that we're talking about this w- when it comes to Jonah. Because we're going to see that some of these same traits that we're talking about in our lives when we co- start to compare our lives to other people, they're the same things that are happening in Jonah's heart. And so we need to be real clear about what it is that Jonah is saying with his life and what God says to him in response and what it has to say to us. And so let's uh, recap a little bit in terms of what, jo- what happens to Jonah. If you remember anything about Jonah, if you've been here for the last six weeks, uh, Jonah starts out with a call from God, right? Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, tell them that they're evil. And Jonah resists from that calling, yeah? And so he goes in a different direction. In fact, he goes the opposite direction, across the ocean, to get away from God's mission in his life. And God runs after Jonah. He tracks him down. He, he gets the, the sailors to throw him into the water, and then he saves Jonah by a fish and brings him back onto dry land. The fish vomits him back up onto the land, and Jonah says, okay, okay, you got me, uncle. I'm going to Nineveh. And so he goes to Nineveh, right? And we think, man, this is a, a major calling. What in the world is going to happen? But lo and behold, Jonah goes in, and in one day's time, he says eight words, and the entire city comes crashing down on itself. And all these people are repenting and asking for forgiveness and coming to the Lord. It's a big come-to-Jesus party in Jonah, right, in, in Nineveh. So now we're, we're, we're past that, and we're at kind of the ending. And so we think, we're probably thinking to ourselves, what a great story it's been. I'm sure Jonah's really glad that he ended up listening to God, you know? Like, he had so much fear going into Nineveh, and God just showed just how powerful he was and how great it was all going to work out. Jonah must just be sitting there so pleased with God and his power and how he's worked in his life. I mean, it's just, it's just going to be a great party at this point, right? So let's, let's catch up and, and see what Jonah's response is. I mean, he's got to be ecstatic, right? that things have gone his way. I'm, I'm in the mood for a happy ending. Are you guys? Everybody go, goes on their merry way. All right, let's see what Jonah says. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What? what? I mean, huh? Do you see the, the incongruity here? I mean, Jonah, you've just been used in the best way possible. You're still living. One, they didn't kill you. Two, they responded to your message. And three, they're, they're coming to know the God that you know. I mean, it couldn't get any better for you, Jonah, right? What's Jonah doing? He is sitting there having the biggest pity party in the world. It's like he just had to give up his most cherished toy to his annoying little sister, right? And he is sitting there pouting, angry. What gives, right? What in the world is going on? I mean, what could possibly be that bad to Jonah? Here's a different, maybe a different translation which could highlight it for you. And if you look at the, at the Hebrew, here's, here's kind of what it says, literal sort of like word for word. But it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Twice in one sentence, it says it was evil to him, a great evil. That word evil is actually the same word that God used to describe the ways of Nineveh. They were evil. 
And so whatever Jonah's experiencing is evil on par with whatever the Ninevites were doing. Not only that, but when God says, I'm going to bring evil to Nineveh for their evil, he means I'm going to totally wipe them out. I'm going to destroy the place. There isn't going to be one stone left standing on another. It's toast. And, and, and so that same word, Jonah is saying, it's evil to me. And so in a very weird way, what Jonah is saying is, whatever you were about to bring on Nineveh, that destruction that you were about to, to, to do on that evil city, in relenting from what you were saying you were going to do, you have transferred that evil from Nineveh to me. It is that bad as if you were just to kill me out in the ocean. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, you think of all the things that could happen in your life. Being in Nineveh at the time of God destroying it would be up there on on a list of things I don't want to do in life, right? I mean, are you there with me? Uh, And so Jonah is saying, it would have been that bad for me to be inside inside the walls of Nineveh had you destroyed it. That's what's so evil. And so we've got to think, what in the world is so horrendous, right? Listen to what Jonah says. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. We've been speculating up until this point, right, about why Jonah fled in the first place. We're about to hear from Jonah's own mouth. Here's why I did it, right? He says this, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You realize this is the first time we're hearing from the mouth of Jonah why he ran in the first place. And here's, so here's the shocking message of Jonah. Here's the twist at the end. This is like the sixth sense moment of the book of Jonah. You remember the sixth sense where you get to the end and you're like, oh, he was dead the whole time. <laughs> I totally ruined that movie for you if you haven't seen it. <laughs> he's either really angry or he's going to rent it. I don't know. It's one or the other. <laughs> Here's the twist in the book of Jonah. Jonah was never afraid of God failing. He was never afraid of God failing him in his mission. What Jonah was afraid of was God succeeding through him. Jonah was petrified that God would actually forgive the people of Nineveh and use Jonah do it. How twisted is that, huh? That's what Jonah's been afraid of. And so Jonah's saying to God, I had a suspicion that this is what you were up to back when I was in my home country. And so even if I didn't say it out loud, this is what I was thinking in the back of my mind. And this is why I fled so readily to go across the ocean to get away from it. Because I hate Nineveh and they don't deserve the compassion that you've given to them. So, what area of your life (laughs) would you be afraid of God succeeding in and not failing? 
A lot of us can be afraid of God failing us, right? If we think if we step out in faith that God isn't going to provide for us and we're afraid of that step of faith because we think he might fail us. But that's not the story of Jonah. What area in your life, if God were to succeed, would you perceive it as failure? And so God may be wanting to do something in you that you're not willing for him to succeed at because you're afraid of what it would look like for him to succeed. What could that thing be for you? Whatever it is for you, the reason that we're resistant to it is because of something called self-righteousness. And so that, that's Jonah's big issue in this whole thing. And we're going to kind of see why that is. I remember a time for me that um, when I did not want God to succeed in breaking me away from a relationship that I knew was unhealthy for me in high school. And when I was in high school, I, I wanted nothing more than to be in a, a stable relationship, and, and that became my world. And, and I, I thought, in, in my grand wisdom in, at the age of 18, that God's role in my life was to give me the things that I, in my heart, desired. And, the, and number one on my list was to keep and maintain this relationship that I knew was unhealthy. Because I, I found my worth in that person and what they said of me. And so God said, at the end of my senior year and, and my first year of college, no, I, I don't think you need this relationship anymore. What he was doing was he was actually using the separation and the pain that came from it in order to fill the gap that I was using her to fill with himself. But he needed to create some pain in my life so that I would understand my need for him and the fact that I was filling that need with something which could never satisfy me. That was an area in my life, if you were to ask me back then, if God were to succeed in breaking off this relationship, is that something that you would want? And I would say, no, no, no. And I pray every day that God would not do that. And yet it was the best thing for me. That's the reason I asked the question, what is it that God needs to succeed in you that scares the death out of you if he were to do it? For Jonah, it's that God would use him to show mercy to his greatest enemies. To show mercy to people he knew didn't deserve it. And, and so, let's kind of t- hit the timeout button. We're going to pause for a second and ask a couple of questions. Does Jonah uh, correctly perceive the, the, the kind of people that Nineveh is at this point in the story? Does he, does he understand how undeserving they are of God's mercy? Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. He hates them, right? He said, there is no way these people deserve what you've just given to them. Okay, so we got that checked off. Does, God, does Jonah see God correctly at this point in the story? His words are right, yeah. You are compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love, slow to anger, relenting from calamity. I think he understands God's character pretty well by this point, right? He, he's just proven God and who he is. So, so 
we've gotten two out of the three main characters out of the way. Who is it that Jonah doesn't see correctly in this story? Yeah, he has no self-perception, right? He has no understanding of who he is. Because if he did, what would be the, the, the story? God, thank you for showing them mercy just as you've shown me mercy, right? And we've seen God show him mercy over and over and over again, and yet Jonah still doesn't get it. He still thinks that he's in a category unto himself. And that category, in what it does, Jonah believes that he deserved the mercy that he got and that they don't deserve the mercy that God gave to them. And this is a condition called self-righteousness. And it is a disease. Here's, Here's my proposition to you today. It is a disease which affects all of us. Every single one of us are affected by this disease. So if I were to give you kind of a a definition of what self-righteousness is, it is believing, it is the belief that our full obedience is enough to earn our salvation apart from God's grace. Even if we don't think that we're being fully obedient, we have in our belief system the understanding that if we were obedient to a certain level, if we are fully obedient, whatever that looks like, that if we were, we will have earned for ourselves salvation apart from God actually just choosing to give it to us in His grace. And so here's the big idea. Self-righteousness, this idea, this belief, it will always distance us from both God and from other undeserving people whom God loves so dearly. It will always serve to distance us from Him and from others. And the only way to defeat self-righteousness is by exchanging the need to justify ourselves by our goodness with the good news that Jesus is our full justification. Now, I know I just gave you a lot, but we're going to unpack a little bit of that. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this concept. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. See, the reason that Jonah is so peeved at this point and believes that Nineveh didn't deserve mercy is because Jonah is forgetting who he is. If you know anything about the story of God up until this point, God chose a people for himself. It started with a guy named Abraham and then... uh, Isaac and Jacob, his sons and grandson, uh, and it sprouted into a nation of Israel. And that nation was in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And then that people cried out to God, and God said, I hear your cries, and I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and I'm going to make you my own people. I'm I'm going to choose to show you grace. I'm going to choose to make you my people. You haven't done anything. I'm just choosing to do it. And so he brings them out to a place called Sinai and he gives them Ten Commandments and some other uh, laws to to live by. But they're to live by those in in the understanding that God has already chosen them. So it's not that you, you do all this stuff and then God chooses you. God chose you, so do this stuff and live in light of the fact that God's chosen you. And here's what God says as part of that. He says this, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name 
the Lord in your presence. He's talking to Moses, the leader of Israel at this point. And then he says this, really interesting. I will have mercy on whom, who? On whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, you don't get to decide who I have compassion towards. I'm just going to choose. And right now I'm choosing you guys. And so it is such a gift in your life that you are to live in a different quality because I've chosen you already. So fast forward now to Jonah's story. Has Jonah done anything for God to choose him? No, right? God just chooses. And he says, I'm going to show my mercy and my grace to you because you're part of this nation that I've ransomed for myself. So how how is it that Jonah doesn't see himself correctly? He thinks that he deserves God's choosing because of the quality of life that he's already lived. He believes that because of who he is uh, and in living a better life than his enemies, that somehow he can now twist God's arm so that he should have a better outcome than the people of Nineveh. That's what self-righteousness does. It says back to God, I deserve what you've given me, and these people don't because they haven't worked as hard enough. And it, it is a total denial of who Jonah is by this point in the story. Because Jonah is worshiping not God. He's worshiping the idea that he's a Hebrew who has lived a life according to the rules. He's always done what God has asked of him. And, and so he's come to the understanding that both his ethnicity and his moral goodness are what set him apart from worthless people like the Ninevites. This is what Jonah is thinking. And so Jonah is rocked to the core when God basically says back to him, you're no better than them. That's what Jonah has feared the whole time. God's saying, in essence, you are no better than these folks over here who are so evil and don't know me. Right? Talking about a kick to the gut. For Jonah, who has built his entire life around this understanding that if you do good, you get good. Has this understanding ever permeated your thinking? No, never, right? Have you ever heard something like this taught in church? No, never, never, ever, ever, right? Whether we like it or not, this becomes part of who we are. And God is saying to us through Jonah... Turns out you're no better than the people that you hate. You're no better than those people who you think deserve condemnation and you deserve mercy. You guys are the same. So think back to that person that you thought of when we first started this whole thing. And you said if they were to get the promotion that you think that you deserve, you would be angry. What is Jonah? Angry. Because Jonah is Self-righteous, which means we are angry. (laughs) Didn't want to complete that logical uh, loop, right? Um, And then Jesus comes along, right? And he he kind of ups the ante. He says other things that make us twinge and cringe at night when he says stuff like, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the problem, is, the problem with loving our enemies is 
We've convinced ourselves that we're better than them. And it's really hard to love someone that you feel superior to. It really is. All right, so what do we do with this, right? How, how, how do we know uh, if, if this is really the condition of our hearts? Because we can talk about it in kind of an ethereal sense and not really get down to the core of what it looks like in everyday life. I, w- I want us to kind of look at maybe a list of things that, that you can maybe check off and see if these are true of you. Because if they are, then chances are you struggle with self-righteousness like I do. And so we're going to go through these indications. I do not want you looking at your spouse or nudging or anything like that. You, you are, are thinking of this for yourself. Okay, so, so some indications, right? Uh, the first one is this, and this is kind of Jonah's deal. You become angry or resentful of undeserving people who have good things happen in their lives. It may affect you, it may not affect you, but when you see somebody get off the hook, when you know that they deserve something that they've that they've gotten, uh, or gotten something that they haven't deserved, it keeps you up at night because you just feel so angry. They didn't do a single thing for it. That's Jonah's deal, right? So that may be yours. Uh, second thing is this. You have a hard time relating to or spending time with people who are unlike you. You have a hard time spending time or relating to people that don't look like you. Why do you think the reason for that might be? You're going to take a guess. Yeah, I mean, we we, we might not spend time with those people because we perceive that our differences create a sense of, I'm not, they're not worthy for my time, right? Or I'm I'm better than them. Um, they're, They're not as smart as I am or as young as I am or as cool as I am. Or they didn't go to the same college that I did. They don't have the same income bracket that I do, right? And so we can wall ourselves off from people that look different from us and only insulate ourselves with people that look just like us because we, in reality, don't think that they deserve our time. How about this one? Uh, You compare yourself to others in order to feel better about your own life. Could be status could be possessions, could be education, could be wealth, uh, a number of different things. But you think about another person, you compare yourself to that person, you think, yep, I'm doing a little bit better than they are, right? This goes back to the, the moral comparison earlier that we talked about. Um, how about this one? You use humor, particularly sarcasm, to put down others because it, it secretly makes you feel good about yourself. I've done it. Yes? You use humor to, to put people down because secretly it makes you feel better about yourself. How about this? Uh, you're a story topper. Uh, no matter what someone has in terms of a story, when they tell your story starts with, oh, no, no, but I've got a better one. <laughs> I saw some people looking around at one another at that one. I always got a better story. I always have to top that story. I always have... I, you know, and, and when you tell your story, the more you tell it, the more you look like the hero of your own story, right? Story toppers. All right, how about this one? Uh, you justify things that you know are wrong in your life by saying, well, at least it's not this. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't give as much as I should, but I give more than them. Or at least I'm not stealing from the offering plate. I mean, let's, you know, I mean, there's some bad things in the world, but I'm not that, right? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I look at softcore pornography on my computer, but I'm, I'm not into the hard stuff. Yes? There's a number of games that we can play where we morally elevate the things that we know are wrong above other morally things that we perceive are worse in order to make those things manageable in our life. And we've minimized it. All right, how about this? Um, You spend a lot of your time trying to manage other people's perceptions of you. And so you want people to think that you're funny or you're smart or you're witty or you're kind, or you're humble, or you're spiritual. And so you spend time being somebody that you know you're not. You try to elevate that characteristic about you when you know you're around certain people because they value that characteristic in you. And so you may have a friend or a coworker at work or something, and they just love to laugh. And so whenever you walk into the office, you're the funny man, Right? You put on this characteristic of yourself because you want people to think well of you, and so you elevate that aspect. And so you study jokes just to try to tell them or try to be witty around certain people to get a certain reaction from them because it makes you feel better. How about this? You have a hard time truly resting from work. Are you like one of those people that has to go in at 7 in the morning and come back at 7 at night when your job is really an eight-hour workday, just because if you don't do the work, the entire world is going to stop from revolving, right? You can't take weekends. You can't take your vacation. Every year, you got like two weeks left on your vacation because you think, if I took the full two weeks, this whole place would come crashing down. If you have a hard time resting from work, that it may be because your performance is giving you your identity, and you're not finding it in Christ. How about this? You have a hard time losing. I'm a sore loser. Um, It is awful to play miniature golf or tennis with me. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're thinking, hey, let's have tennis with the pastor, it will not go well. I'm just telling you right now. (laughs) Unless I win. In which case, I will rub it in your face, right? (laughs) Yeah. This is why I only play team sports. Because in team sports, you can always blame someone else, right? Johnny had a great day, but his team stunk. No, Johnny stunk, right? Anyway. See, if you have a hard time losing, it's because you're finding something of your worth in the fact that you want to be a winner. Yes? This happens all the time. And so we we teach people this, that that even in team sports, we do this with our youngest kids. I know that the team did poorly today, but you were great out there. And it doesn't matter what their performance was, right? And they, they start to think that my performance was great. So if it's anything less than great, Mom and dad aren't going to love me quite as much as they did before. You have a hard time losing. These are just nine examples. I'm sure there are a lot more, but you're probably thinking to yourself, how in the world has he given us such detailed 
explicit examples? And the answer is because all of them have been true in my own life. They're all for my own hypocrisy in my own life. And so if I'm struggling with some of those things, I, you know, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that maybe you are too. All are indications that we're trying to build up enough good credit so that we can cash that credit in for God's good graces. You ever tried to do anything like that? I would say that's probably the condition of the human soul apart from knowing Christ. There are those people who are not in this category, right? Those people like the Ninevites who live their lives in total debauchery. And here's the thing about God's grace. Those people who know that they've screwed up in life are far more willing to find the grace of God attractive than those of us who've lived our lives trying to build it up ourselves apart from God's influence in us. Those people are far more likely to really truly value the grace of God that's found in Christ. It's those of us that are self-righteous in our own sense that have such a hard time with grace. And what God is saying to Jonah, what's kind of bubbling up in the story of Jonah, is that both things are just as bad and just as much a hindrance to a real relationship with God. That's what we need to get into our psyche and into our mindset. So what do we do with ourselves? Where do we go from here? Um, Jesus gives a great picture of what it looks like to kind of be found in the category of someone who understands their own sinfulness and comes to God looking for grace. He shares this story, and let's see if it's kind of applicable to, to this message, right? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Hmm. I think this has anything, any bearing on what we've talked about already. Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Get the comparison? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Hey God, here's the stuff. Here's what I've done. Look at this. Does he sound anything like Jonah? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's the point. I tell you the truth. This man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who, hum- who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be what? exalted. Who is Jesus recommending that we look like in the story? The tax collector, right? It is the one who says, yep, I'm a sinner and I need mercy. It's the one in the story that understands the seriousness of their own sin. And that that sin is an issue. He's not even looking to get close to the front of the place. He's standing at a distance, right? He's in the back of the room because he doesn't even feel worthy enough to go forward. And God says, if you take your sin serious enough that you know that it separates you from God that distance, 
you're in a better place than somebody who holds up all their good works and says, God, love me for this. It's the tax collector that we should be like. In other, so Jesus is saying the antidote to self-righteousness is not to find more of your righteousness, more of your justification, more of your ability to save you in you. The only way to defeat that is to know that God gives grace to sinners like you and that every effort of yours to replace God by your good works is by definition sin. It is by definition just as bad as going out and getting drunk every night. What you've used to keep a distance from God, that is just as much of an issue that needs to be dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Do you really believe that? That's a tough pill to swallow, right? But here's the thing. The less that we truly believe that Jesus and what He did for us on the cross is enough, then the more we'll have to fill that gap between where we know we are and where we know we're not with our own righteousness. If we believe that His isn't enough, we'll fill it with our own. And we'll do it all the time. And the byproduct of that continual lifestyle is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness leads to superiority. Because the only way of really justifying yourself and making yourself feel better apart from the cross and what God says of you is to compare yourself to other people to create that separation in your mind. It's the only way it's done. And that's the reason that the the Pharisee says, I'm so glad I'm not a tax collector. Because that's what his hope is in. And so here's the beautiful truth. It's hard, but it's beautiful. That if you had enough goodness contained within you to justify yourself before God, then there would have been nor would there be any need for God's perfect Son to take your place on the cross and die for your sins. There wouldn't have been any need for it. God would have just said, okay, do enough. But He doesn't do that, right? It takes such an intervention as sending His own Son to deal with it because it is never enough. And at the cross, we finally see an accurate view of ourselves. I kind of wonder what it would have been like for Jonah to stand at the cross and go, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. I needed that just as much as the Ninevites needed it. We need it just as much as our enemies need it. God says this uh, to Jonah, and this is kind of the capping piece. This is God's response to him. Have you any right to be angry? I love that response. Do you, you have any right, Jonah, to be angry? You're so consumed with yourself. Are you looking at the picture correctly? Do you see it for what it is? Do you see you for who you are? Because I've shown you grace, just as I've shown them grace. Really what he's saying is you don't have any right to be angry. You don't have any right other than to say thank you, God, for the grace that you've given to me. So your identity, it should be not grounded in your sense of superiority to your enemies. It should be grounded in the fact that I've shown you unconditional grace just as I've shown it to them. 
And so here's for us. If you live your life according to this understanding, that your righteousness, that your right standing before God has nothing to do with you building yourself up, it has everything to do with what God has done for you through His Son, that will change your life. And it's not just something that you need to know on the day that you come to know Jesus and then you move on from that reality and you start to live your life according to other things. Where's the deeper truth, right, that I need? Give me the meat. That's the milk, right? This is the meat of the gospel. This is what it looks like to know Jesus every single day. It's to wake up and say to him, I do not deserve it. I have not deserved it. I cannot deserve it, and yet you give it anyway. And I know you because I know Jesus. And here's the thing. If you live your life that way, you will not see yourself as superior to other people. In fact, you will be the most attractive people the world has ever known. Because you'll look a lot like Jesus at that point, won't you? And you'll live your life according to him and not according to yourself. You'll love other people rather than judging them for what they don't do. You'll be the kind of person that God wants you to be. And that's really the goal for us to look like Jesus, is it not? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for examples of self-righteous people like me uh, in your story because it illustrates so clearly how much we need you and how great your mercy is in our life. And so for those of us that may have struggled with or are struggling with this idea that we have earned our right to be in a relationship with you or our right for good things in this life, Uh, teach us what it looks like to find mercy when we don't deserve it and grace in our time of need. God, if it were about getting what we deserve, then Jesus would have never suffered the way he did. God, it's just apparent in my mind that there was someone who's lived the greatest life anyone has ever lived on the face of the earth And yet what he got for it in return was nothing but being despised and tortured and killed even though he didn't deserve it. And so for those of us that follow him, God, I pray that you give us an understanding that even when we do good things, it doesn't mean that we'll get good things. But I thank you, God, that we get the greatest thing that we need, which is a relationship with you and a place in your kingdom because of what your son has done for us. Help that be uh, the lens by which we view ourselves and we view our world. Because through it, we will not only change our lives, but we'll see the world change through us. That's what we ask for in Christ's name.